But for now, we're going to turn to that foundation that God has given to us for our faith uh, that he says is in his wonderful word. So let's take our Bibles out this morning and let us begin by reading uh, from Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at Romans chapter 15 and 16 this morning. As Paul comes to the the end of this book, we are going to uh, take a look at at that whole section this morning. I think we can do that. We've got a couple hours here. Follow along with me as I read just um, verses 14 through 33 of chapter 15. We'll uh, contain our reading to that for, for the opening this morning. Romans chapter 15 beginning in verse 14. Paul, writing to us this morning, says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain." And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints." so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We'll stop there this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, uh, for your blessings to us that come to us through your word, that, uh, that firm foundation that is laid for us, uh, that we may know you, that we may know uh, the grace that you have shown to us and that you have for us in Christ, that we may know Christ, that we may learn of him. And this morning we pray that you would bless us as we look at these, these words that are before us. Uh, may we 
May we rejoice in what you have for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Well, as we return one more time, one last time here to the book of Romans this morning, if we think back a few weeks ago when we were last here, we've taken a little break, but last time we were in Romans, remember that we came to what we said was the end of the, the main body of this book, of Paul's magnum opus, his letter to the church in Rome. And this morning, then, we're going to look at his concluding remarks, which are what we have in chapters, the second half of chapter 15 and through chapter 16. And in this final section here of his letter, Paul speaks, uh, writes, really wearing several hats. He, he speaks, he writes as an apostle. He writes as an evangelist. He writes as a pastor. All three of those things. As he closes his letter, he encourages his readers. He speaks of his ministry among them. He speaks of the provision that God has given to him in the fulfillment of that special ministry that he has given to Paul. He reminds us of of just what an amazing ministry he had. Though, of course, we'll see that he is careful to direct our attention and our praise to the only proper place to the work and the grace of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And as he does, he speaks to us today. As as he speaks in these words, he really speaks to pastors today uh, and, and of the ministers of the word, the ministry of the word considered a little more broadly and generally, which pastors today occupy. Of course, we uh, as pastors today are not apostles. We are not prophets We are pastors. Uh, We do the work of an evangelist, as Paul uh, commanded. But we are pastors. We are ministers. We are servants of the Lord, and we learn quite a bit from this. And Paul writes here directly to the church of Rome, and he speaks of his plans to visit them. All of these things we're going to see as we work through these verses this morning. We're going to look at Paul's conclusion this morning under four headings. We'll look at Paul's purpose Paul's pride, Paul's plans, and finally Paul's people. We begin with Paul's purpose, and he begins with an address to his readers that is really a compliment. He begins with a compliment. He begins with an an encouragement, a good word to this congregation as he begins to wrap up here. Remember that he had recently, uh, when we had last uh, been together in the book of Romans, we looked at this, that he had been exhorting the readers in the area of unity in the church with this whole discussion that he had about the strong in faith and the weak in faith and how differences in non-essential things should never be a source of division in the church. And those things are still on his mind as he comes here to these verses. But, but as he closes his letter, he sort of steps back a little bit and expresses his deep affection his confidence in the Lord, in the Roman church's godly character. And he draws his readers close, as it were, to him by writing to them in in verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. A term of endearment. Of course, when he says my brothers, he includes uh, the male and the females within the church there at Rome. 
And he says, my brothers, he says, I myself am satisfied about you. That is, I'm convinced of certain things about you. And namely, he says, that you yourselves are, and he lists three things there. He says, you're full of goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. He says, you're, you're full of goodness. That word means kindness and generosity, speaking of the, the character of the church. He says, you're filled with all knowledge, and obviously there he's referring to their general knowledge concerning many of the things that Paul has spoken about in this letter. And as you go back and think about all that we've seen as we've gone through the book of Romans, there is a very wide uh, area that he has covered, many doctrines that he has spoken of. And he speaks to these people and he says, you're filled with knowledge. You're filled with the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of essential things. And not only are you filled with that knowledge yourselves, but he says, I'm confident about you that you're able to share that knowledge with one another. You're able to teach one another, which is part of what we are called to do in the church, to exhort one another, to admonish one another, to teach one another of the things of the Lord, to share that knowledge. And he says that he's confident of that in the church in Rome. What a blessing to to have that kind of congregation. And what an aspiration for any congregation to have, to have these things be true. You know, we should ask the question, does that describe us? More directly, is that a quality or an aspiration that you yourselves bring to this congregation? Are you kind? Are you generous? Are you full of goodness? Do you have knowledge? Do you have the right knowledge? Do you hold that knowledge with humility? Not being puffed up by it, but being humbled by it. And are you both able and willing to share that knowledge with your brothers and sisters? And of course... We should add, do we have that thing that is so critical that Paul has talked about throughout, really, the second half of the book of Romans, that thing without which none of those other things really mean anything, and that is, do we have love? Do you bring those things to this congregation? Something we should reflect on. And are we as a congregation that way? In other words, are we what the Roman church was, which is really a spiritually mature church. Not not a perfect church. The church in Rome was not a perfect church. It had its problems. It's had its deficiencies. Every church does. But Paul, in his expression here at the opening of this passage, really gives a a message of, of encouragement to them that he is confident of their spiritual maturity. Are we aspiring to be like that? Do we desire to to be that kind of church that Paul talks about here? I hope so. I pray that we are. Each of us really need to examine our hearts, our own hearts, and to answer that question for ourselves. And each of us need, where appropriate, to repent 
where the, where the answer is no, perhaps, to those questions. And to pray that the Lord will change our hearts and continue to, to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And we need, need to give thanks to God where the answer to those questions are yes. And do what we can to, to cultivate that within our fellowship. Notice here that Paul is speaking to this church and he's focusing not on their weaknesses, but he's focusing on their strength. He says, I'm confident that these things are true about you. Now, they weren't true about every person in the congregation, and they weren't true to the level that certainly Paul would certainly hope that they were true. But they're true to the point where Paul can say, I see this in you. I'm satisfied about you in these things. And so he starts out with that as he, continue, as he begins to close his letter here. But despite this, this positive affirmation, he reminds them of what this letter has been about and of one of the things that's been true about this letter. Paul reminds them that as he has written to them, despite their spiritual maturity, that he has had to be direct with them about certain things. Look at verse 15. He says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly. And haven't we seen that? Think back again to what we've seen as we've gone through the book of Romans. Very bold in some places in this letter. You know, he spoke boldly about the wrath of God that's coming upon the wickedness of this world. Upon the idolatry, upon the depravity, upon the ungratefulness in regard to the riches of his kindness that he talked about early on. He spoke boldly, Paul did, to those within their midst who may have sought to turn God's grace into an excuse for sin. Later in the book, in, in chapter 9, didn't Paul come right out and say to them, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And then more recently, he said, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he says, he stands or falls. So Paul has clearly spoken very boldly. And we know, and Paul reminds us, that Paul is very capable. He's very willing to speak directly. And we need that sometimes. And Paul reminds his readers of it. Something else that needs to be true of every minister and every elder in every congregation. The, the willingness and the ability to speak boldly when boldness is called for. You know, we may smooth feathers, but we do no eternal favors to people when we refuse to speak the truth in love and to confront sin and error when it is evident in the church, when it needs to be addressed. Even when, as Paul says, as it was in his case, he says it is by way of reminder. You know, sometimes we need to not just be reminded of things, but we need to be boldly reminded of things. We need to be strongly, um, even sometimes confrontationally reminded of things, things that we know. You know, I know in this congregation that there, we have that knowledge. We know what God requires of us, but very often it's convenient to forget about it, and we need to be reminded. Paul's people in the church that Paul writes to here, they needed to be reminded and boldly, and so Paul says, I've done that. And why? Why has he done this? 
Why is, he, why is he putting them in remembrance of these things? Well, it's because, he says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus. He says, because that's what I'm here for. That's my purpose. That's my ministry. That's my calling. As it is the purpose of every minister of the gospel. To stir up by way of reminder and bringing God's word to bear. Of the knowledge of the gospel, of the grace of God, which has been abundantly and freely shown to us. The glory of the doctrine of justification and all the things that go along with that, all the things that flow from that, both the blessings and the responsibilities. The free gift of God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the need, because of those mercies of God, for us to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God, to show honor and to show love to others above ourselves. This all needs to be restated. It all needs to be reminded to us. We need to be reminded of the gospel and of our response to the gospel. And we need to be reminded about it for the very simple reason that we often forget it. And at times it needs to be a bold reminding because we tend to neglect, all of us do, the things that we are called to as justified, adopted, spirit-indwelt members of Christ's church. And Paul says, I've done that. Now, Paul here also reminds them again, he returns to the very specific lane of ministry that that Paul had, that God had called him to. At the end of verse 15 there, and and into verse 15, he speaks of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He mentions that just as he mentioned it at the beginning of the book. This idea that he is a minister to the Gentiles particularly. In chapter 1, in verse 5, he spoke of the fact that he has, he said, received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, that is the name of Christ, among all the nations, including you. Among all the nations is a way of speaking of Gentiles particularly. And remember that the Roman church to which Paul has been writing is a church that was primarily a Gentile church in a Gentile nation. And Paul was specifically called, he reminds them, there and here at the end of the book, to bring about the good news of Christ to the Gentile world. Not exclusively, but primarily to them. Back in chapter 11 of Romans, he says, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And as he moves on into verse 16, he he goes on to explain that ministry. He says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul's ministry was, by the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, to serve, as it were, as, as, as the priest did in the Old Testament. To bring the Gentiles, he says, to God. To bring them as an offering to God. 
Now, there are some that have, have thought here that when he says the offering of the Gentiles, that he means the offering that the Gentiles bring. The offerings that they bring, primarily it would be of them, again, offering themselves up, going back to chapter 12. And there's a certain truth in that. There's a true sense in which Gentiles, such as you and I, are indeed to bring such an offering ourselves. But Paul's meaning here is that the Gentiles themselves are the offering. They are the offering that is being brought to Christ through faith and overseen, as it were, by Paul in his priestly role as the the apostle to the Gentiles, giving the gospel to them. And through that, God working through that, bringing them to faith, bringing them to, to salvation, bringing them to God. Sacrifices and offerings that are made acceptable to God, he says, as they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is reflecting here on his ministry to them as he gives to them his purpose. His purpose in ministering to them, his purpose in ministering, period. And so he reminds them of his calling. He reminds them of God's grace. He reminds them of his own purpose, speaking boldly, ministering to the church as a minister of Christ Jesus, particularly to the Gentile people. That brings us secondly to what I've called Paul's pride. And I called this second point Paul's pride to sort of grab your attention. And I hope it worked. Because one of the last things that we think of that come to our mind when we think of the Apostle Paul is pride. We think more often of, as, of remember in Philippians chapter 2 or, or 3, where he goes through and lists all of these things that he had to be proud about, and he says what? I, I consider them dung. I consider them garbage. I consider them nothing. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he said that I, I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Pride is not something that the converted Paul is known for. But he says here in verse 17, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. But I think to understand that, we have to notice the language in which that assertion is couched. He sets that, and if you look at verse 17, notice how he begins that sentence. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. See, his pride is not really in himself, it's in Christ and what Christ has done through him. Not his own ability, not his own uh, work, but Christ. While Paul magnified his ministry, he does not magnify himself. It is in Christ, it is only in Christ, that he and all ministers of the gospel have a reason, any reason, to be proud of their ministry because of the one whom they serve, the one who is effective in the ministry. The grace of God is that in which we are proud. The sacrifice of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul's statement from Galatians 6.14. He said, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3.5, he said, We are sufficient in ourselves for nothing, but our sufficiency is in Christ. 
And that's what he's saying here. As he clarifies his statement and as he continues to to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles, remember he, he said that earlier in, I mentioned this a moment ago, Romans 11, 13, he says, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, but the magnification is on Christ. In verse 18 here, He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. I will not speak of anything, he says, that I've accomplished as if it were anything that that I can attribute to myself. If anything is gained through my ministry, he says, it is what Christ has done through me. All eyes on Christ, Paul says. Not on Paul. Christ is the effective agent. He is the one who works to bring about change. He is the one that converts sinners. Paul doesn't. And he knew that. And he speaks specifically here again about bringing the Gentiles to obedience. Again, something that is sort of a bookend to what we see at the beginning of the book. He spoke about bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, among the Gentiles. Which, Paul says, Christ accomplished through Paul, he says there, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, verse 19. Those signs of apostleship which marked and validated the things that Paul preached and that he taught. And he stresses again, it's by the power of the Spirit of God. It's not Paul's own power that he is proud of. It's not Paul's own power that he's putting out there. But it is through the working of the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to boast about in ourselves. And it is through that, through that work of Christ, through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that Paul is able to say at the end of verse 19, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And just before that, he gives sort of the parameters of that ministry. See there where he says, from Jerusalem all the, and all the way around Illyricum. To us, if we don't really have a good idea of sort of the geography of the area, that might escape us. But Paul is, is pointing out the furthest limits of his ministry there. Jerusalem, down in the southeast. Illyricum, which is in modern-day Albania in northern Greece, that representing the northwest limit. All through there, Paul says, I have fulfilled the ministry that God has given to him. That was Paul's success. Again, the success not of Paul, but of Christ through Paul by means of the Spirit of God. Success in that he had done what God had called him to do to this point in his ministry. We know that his ministry is not over yet, but he has done what God has called him to do. Again, as we think of Paul saying, all eyes on Christ, not on me, but we should note that, that any success, that any minister, any pastor on this planet has, any success that any minister can point to, is only a success of faithfulness. You know, and it doesn't matter whether it is faithfulness to huge numbers of people or to few people. 
The point is faithfulness. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're an R.C. Sproul or a G.L. Crow. Faithfulness, not numbers, not size of ministry. Faithfulness in that ministry is the measure of success. And that success and that faithfulness is the result of what Christ accomplishes through any minister. Through Paul, perhaps the greatest of human ministers. Paul says, I have reason to be proud of my work of God, but it is a glory not in me, but it's in Christ and what he has done through me. And thus he says in verse 20, he says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. See, here now Paul's speaking as a missionary who, by God's grace, had an amazing missionary uh, accomplishment, missionary uh, result. In Paul's journeys, in his four journeys, he, he traveled an amazing 10,000 miles, scholars calculate. You know, made all the more amazing when we consider that he traveled the majority of those on foot. He founded, at the very least, 14 churches directly. That number's probably higher, but to err on the, the small side, 14 churches. Most of his travels were either in planting churches or revisiting the churches that he had planted in order to strengthen them, to strengthen the brethren, as he said. And in doing that, Paul had fulfilled his ministry. And then he concludes, we're not surprised here, with a quotation from the Old Testament. There in verse 21. He says, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That quotation comes from the, the Greek translation of Isaiah 52.15. Think of Isaiah 52.15. That's right at the end of that chapter. And what's the next chapter? Isaiah 53. You know Isaiah 53. It's actually part of that same passage, really. And it fits Paul's purposes perfectly here when it says they are those who have never been told of him in the Isaiah passage it's referring specifically to the Gentile nations the Gentile kings when it speaks of him in verse 21 those who have never been told of him of course he's speaking of the servant of Yahweh uh, chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah is the last of those servant songs he's speaking of Christ and what they will be told in that verse, what they will understand is the gospel about that Messiah, the gospel about Christ. So it perfectly fits what Paul is talking about here. As Paul, through the fulfilling of his ministry, was actually fulfilling that prophecy. And so in these verses, Paul speaks of his pride, which ironically is not his pride, is not in himself, but in Christ. And in that was Paul's sufficiency. And again, it's the same for all ministers of the Word. Our sufficiency is in the Lord. Our ability is in the Lord. The ministers are nothing, no matter how famous they are, no matter how well-known. Because it's God, not a pastor, who makes a difference in people's lives. God saves. God justifies. God sanctifies. Not a minister, but God. We 
we sadly get in the way probably as much as we give God any help. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need to use the agency of human ministers who have feet of clay like all men. But God chooses to do so. He chooses to use the foolishness not only of the message preached, as Paul says in in Corinthians, but also the foolishness of the messengers themselves and their weakness. He uses them to spread his word, to convert souls, to perfect saints. And as Paul thinks on those things, he turns next to his plans. Paul's plans is the third thing. And in the rest of this chapter, in verses 22 through 33, Paul explains his, his plans as he intends them, his upcoming itinerary, his visit that, as he hopes to return, or hopes to visit for the first time the church at Rome. Again, Paul mentioned that at the beginning of the letter. His, his ardent desire and plan to visit the church. A church, remember, that he did not plant, that he had never been to, but he wants to go. He said back there at the beginning in, in chapter 10, or verse, verse 10 of chapter 1, he said, In my prayers, he says, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now he says to them, I've largely fulfilled my ministry. The things that have occupied me here and and elsewhere, he wrote this letter from Corinth. He says, those things that have kept me thus far from coming to you are largely fulfilled, and so at last I'm going to get to come see you. He says, this is the reason, this is verse 22, he says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, he's saying there that he has fulfilled those things, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. You see, Paul still, as, even as he talks about going to Rome, he's thinking of other ministry. He says, as I'm going to go to Spain, I want to go there, but I want to see you, and I'll see you while I'm on my way to do further ministry. His plan was to to visit them when he went to Spain. Um, And to be, you know, it's possible that he was going to stop there. There were no Jewish settlements in Spain that we know about. And so perhaps in addition to just being with these beloved saints, that he would... um, he would gain some, some practical help in getting on to Spain. He says, to impart to you some spiritual gift, that is that we may be mutually encouraged. Uh, it could be that he, that he hoped to be blessed with practical resources as well. You know, there's a lot of questions that people say they want to ask the Apostle Paul when they get to heaven. And there are many people who want to ask the question if Paul ever made it to Spain. Because we don't know. This passage is the only place in Paul's letters or the book of Acts that mentions Spain at all. But he says, I plan to go. 
And when I do, I'm going to come see you finally. But before that, Paul says, he, he explains here that he's getting ready first to go the other direction. He says, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. I have to go, he said, with a, with a gift for the suffering church, the suffering people there in Jerusalem that he had collected from the churches in Greece. You remember as Paul was going along, particularly during his, his third missionary journey, that he had made this collection, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem to give it. If you read Acts 18 uh, through about 21, you'll, you'll see this third missionary journey uh, that Paul uh, is on. And he mentions specifically that the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, those are, that's northern and southern Greece, basically, uh, an area that included Corinth and, and uh, Philippi and other, other churches. He says that he had collected from them Thessalonica is in that area. He says they have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Sort of the mother church. Which Paul says was appropriate. In verse 27 he says they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. He says, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. You know, a bit of a throwback to Paul's discussion in verses 10 and 11 where we talked about how the, the Gentiles owed much to the Jews uh, because their rejection even of Christ was what allowed the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Paul says, because, and the fact that Christ came, I go back to the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of, of Romans where Paul talks about the, the patriarchs, uh, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, all of those things uh, were from the Jews. The church in Jerusalem was the beginning of the, the New Testament church and the, the missionary activity started from there. So he says in all of those things, they... Oh, the Gentile churches in Greece and elsewhere, they owe the church in Jerusalem to help them in physical things because they've been blessed. And he anticipates his trip to Jerusalem. He knows from bitter experience that persecution awaits him there, and if you read it, you know that that turned out to be exactly true. He entreats the saints to pray for him. The saints in Rome, he says, pray for me. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And then once more he speaks of his desire to come to them. He says, to be refreshed in your company. What a love for this church that Paul had. A church he'd never been to. And that's another blessing, by the way, of being, by grace, a part of the church of Christ. To be a part of, of Christ's church is to instantly be a part of a family that reaches around the world and crosses lines of language and culture and class and race, education, financial status, any other distinguishing characteristic you know, because we are all part of one church with one Lord and one Savior, 
Wherever you find a church of Christ throughout this whole world, you find a group of sinners saved by grace, by the grace of God, and immediately can find a sense of camaraderie, of koinonia, fellowship. And many of you have witnessed this firsthand, as Paul had, and he was confident that he would when he gets to go to Rome. Well, finally, let's look at Paul's people. And that brings us to chapter 16. Paul opens what we have here as the final chapter of Romans. Remember, chapters and verses weren't in the original documents. But he opens up this this last chapter with a long list, by far the longest of any of his letters, of greetings to individuals in the church there. Although it's interesting that he does not he does not greet them personally. He does not say, I greet so-and-so, but he says to the church, you greet them. You greet them for me. And it's hard to know for sure why that is. It's quite possibly that all of these people that were in Rome would be encouraged as, they, as this letter would have been read to them, read out loud. That's the way these letters uh, would have been handled. You know, and the people would have heard their names. They would have heard Paul greeting them in that uh, secondhand way. And almost all of the people that, that he mentions here, and there's quite a list of them, uh, there's 26 people that he mentions here by name, almost all of them are unknown anywhere else in the New Testament. But they're known to Paul. He mentions Jews in this list and Gentiles. Men and women, there are two families he mentions, there are three house churches that he mentions. But at the beginning, he does mention one person in particular, a Gentile woman by the name of Phoebe, who, verse 1 of chapter 16, is called a servant of the church at Syncrea. And the word that Paul uses in describing her as a servant is the word from which we get our word deacon. Now, we're not saying that she was a deacon, as we think of a deacon today. That office uh, is in development at this time. It's unlikely that she functioned in the full-orbed way that we see deacons operating in the church. But she is certainly, by Paul's use of the word in describing her, a faithful servant and a, a servant of God's people in her hometown, especially as he further describes her, look there, as a patron of many and of myself as well. A patron is a benefactor. She may have been a contributor to his ministry. A well-to-do member of that church there in Syncrea, which is very near to Corinth, and and so Paul would have been uh, perhaps very familiar with her. She's also very likely, by the way she's mentioned here, she is probably the one who delivered this letter to the church at Rome. And quite possibly the one who would have read it in the hearing of the congregations. And so because of her service to Paul and to the church, he requests that she be shown, he says, the the utmost of Christian hospitality. He says that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. He then asked the church to to greet there in verse 3, Prisca and Aquila, known in the book of Acts as Priscilla and Aquila, that husband and wife, possibly brother and sister team that were also of such help to Paul in the church. 
Paul met them in Corinth. When they, along with others, had been kicked out of Rome uh, during a particular time, uh, they were living there in Corinth. Uh, Remember that when Apollos, that wise teacher from Alexandria, came and was was being used by God in that church, that, that he, while he was wise and while he was teaching the gospel, that he only knew, they said, of the, gospel, or of the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him in and explain further the things of God. So they're very uh, important people, important people to Paul. And then following the mention of those three is his list of 23 other people. As I said, various backgrounds, various nationalities, all of which Paul urges Christian greetings, including at the end of verse 16, that holy kiss that they use to greet one another. And then as a conclusion to this letter where Paul has has laid out the gospel of Christ, that he has taught such foundational and critical doctrines, including what a doctrine that the Reformers called the foundational, preeminent doctrine of the church, the doctrine of justification. As Paul comes to the end, now he also warns the congregation in Rome. He warns them against those who would teach something different. In verse 17 of chapter 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. He says, avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. And then again he speaks of his confidence in the saints there in Rome. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But still, he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Echoing that statement that Jesus made in Matthew 10, verse 16. And Paul is likely referencing that as he speaks here. He wants the Roman Christians to be morally innocent, but not gullible. Not liable to those false teachings that may come. He wants them to not be tossed about, as he said, by every wind of doctrine that may blow through the church. A warning that... The church today needs to desperately hear and heed. But know, he says, that the God of peace, that he'll deal with Satan. He'll deal with the false teachers. And again in verse 33, he ends with a benediction and a good word. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. But he still has still a little more to say. See, preachers today are not the only ones who close their, close their sermons more than once. Paul does the same thing. You think he's reached the end. He gives a, a, a little bit of a, a doxology, and then he goes on. But there's more. <laughs> but now he includes greetings to the church from those who are with him. He mentions Timothy, verse 21. Timothy, his, his true child in the faith, his closest associate, He mentions Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, fellow Jews who had all been of some importance to Paul in his ministry. Uh, Tertius is presented as the one who wrote this letter, it says there. Wait a minute, didn't Paul write this letter? Well, of course he did. Tertius served as Paul 
Paul's secretary, his amanuensis. Uh, Paul would have dictated this letter to him, to Tertius. And so Paul gives Tertius the opportunity to send his own greeting. Gaius, he mentions, Paul's host. Erastus, a city official, and just a brother in the Lord that we don't know anything about, Quartus. He sends his greetings as well. You know, I mentioned earlier that we don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain. But what we do know is that Paul made it to Rome. Though not in the way that he anticipated. I'll leave that to you if you don't know it. If you want to read of Paul's journey to Rome, which begins with this return to Jerusalem that he's been talking about, read Acts 21 through 28. You can read it this afternoon in one sitting. You can see how Paul finally came to Rome, so different than what he he expected. But now Paul draws this great epistle, this giant of doctrinal exposition, this Hyperion of the New Testament to a close. And he brings, it, brings us back to the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, with which he began it, the gospel. He closes with a word of praise. He closes, uh, really closes this time, with a doxology to the God whose servant Paul is and whose servant we are. And the one whose gospel we preach and we rejoice in. Listen carefully to it. Listen joyfully to it as I read it. And let us agree with the word of Paul as he says it. And with this we will close our study of the book of Romans. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And to that and to all of this that we've seen in the book of Romans, let us say, Amen. Father, We thank you for this time that we've had in this book, the amazing heights that we have seen, the glory of your will, the glory of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the glory of the peace that that brings with you, the glory of the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us, who is an inheritance given to us. And the necessity that we not be conformed to this world, but that we be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we show love to one another, that we look to the needs of others more than to our own, that we remember how you work throughout history, Lord, through the Jews and through the Gentiles to bring all under one, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen all this, Lord, we pray that you would not let it soon vanish from our memories, but that you would reinforce it to us. That whenever we read these words, we will remember the things that we've seen. 
And we pray that we would humbly thank you, O God, for the great message of the book of Romans, the message of the gospel, the message of Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.